Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor, somewhere in Florida. And I'm Timothy Revel in New York. This week on the show, NASA's asteroid-studying Lucy mission flies by its first space rock en route to the Trojan asteroids of Jupiter. And a report from the UK's AI Safety Summit, where delegates from 28 countries signed an agreement to cooperate on minimizing the risks and misuse of artificial intelligence. Plus, starfish are just heads. That's right. Starfish are just heads? Yep. Just heads. You heard it here first, Tim. But first, do you lie awake at night worrying about getting enough sleep? Well, I know I do, certainly sometimes. And so we've got medical reporter Claire Wilson here to ease our minds a little bit. Claire, you've been writing about the surprising finding that we may no longer need to care quite as much about how much sleep we get, which seems to contradict the usual advice. So, as Christy might say, what gives? Yeah, it does seem really strange because we, we've long been told we need to get seven or eight hours sleep a night or sometimes even nine hours might be the advice. And recently, this has been linked with the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Claims have been made that sleeping too little even shrinks your brain, which sounds horrible. But the real answer may be that we need much less than we thought. And it's partly because the original advice tends to come from what are called observational studies. And these can only observe correlations between good health and sleep duration. And one of the most important sayings in science is that correlation does not prove causation. So does that mean we should be taking past sleep studies with a bit of a pinch of salt? Yes, it does. I mean, you've got to remember that just because you observe a pattern, for instance, high A is linked with high B, it doesn't mean that A causes B. It could be that B causes A or that a third factor, C, causes both A and B. So... In this case, it could be that for people in poor health, their disease or perhaps the unnoticed initial stages of that disease, that is disrupting people's sleep. So the new study looked at an enormous collection of brain scans from several previous sleep-related studies, and it amalgamated them all together, and it has produced 
what is actually now the largest such body of research on this question. And the researchers kind of analysed this data in several different ways. I'm just going to highlight two of the ways they did it here. The first is that if you look at the genetic results, this shows that people who are genetically predisposed to sleep less don't have smaller brains. So that does suggest that in this particular case of correlation, it's not that bad sleep is causing brain shrinkage. Maybe the cause is going in the opposite direction, or maybe there's a third factor, as we said. Right. So maybe the brain shrinkage is messing up your sleep or something else in your life is both shrinking your brain and messing up your sleep. Exactly. Exactly. And um, the second analysis that I just want to bring up is that when they did do the standard kind of correlation study, and this included now about 47,000 people, and that's a huge number for a typical brain scanning studies, they found that the largest brain volume was seen in people who got only about six and a half hours of sleep. So even if you don't believe the genetic findings and you do believe that you you kind of need this minimum amount of sleep to protect your brain and stop it from shrinking away, that magic number seems to be a lot less than the traditionally advised amounts for how much you need to sleep. So that sounds like really good news for anyone who just can't sleep for seven or eight hours, which includes my very good friend who is weirdly also named Christy. But does this mean that we can truly just throw away our sleep trackers and forget about all this? Mm, Well, that would be nice. Um, But there are certain caveats to the research. So this study only measured brain health by looking at brain size. Um, There are other possible harmful effects of getting too little sleep. It has also been linked with, you know, higher rates of heart attacks, various other illnesses. So it can't say definitively, you never need to worry about this. Yeah, and I guess an obvious downside of not getting enough sleep is you're a little bit sleepy the next day. Yeah, I mean, we all know that. We don't need a big study to to tell us that. (laughs) Um, In fact, the lead researcher for this study, when I was talking to him, he said that's probably the only kind of sleep tracking kind of biomarker, they're sometimes called, that you need to worry about. So rather than kind of tracking your hours and some people analyse it in even more detailed ways, just If you're feeling tired in the day, then yes, you probably aren't getting enough sleep. But if you feel fine, then yeah, stop worrying about it. It's time for my favorite part of the week, what's new in space. Lucy, NASA's craft to explore Jupiter's Trojan asteroids, just did its first test flyby of a different asteroid on Wednesday. And what strange rock in Earth's mantle may tell us about the collision that created our moon? and how Earth even became as special as it is. Space reporter Leia Crane is here. Hey, Leia. Hello. So first off, Lucy, again, just did this flyby of an asteroid in the main belt. What kind of data is it collecting? So frankly, it didn't collect a whole ton of data because it was hurtling by at 10,000 miles an hour. And the asteroid that it went by, which is called Dinkanesh, is less than one kilometer across. So that's not a lot of observation time. Um, But the main point of this flyby was to test out all the instruments, particularly the tracking system that's used to keep the asteroid in the field of view, which, as you can imagine, is pretty hard at 10,000 miles an hour. Um, (laughs) Testing some of those instruments means some pictures and some information about the surface of Dinkanesh, which we've never seen up close before. So any new asteroid we observe can tell us stuff about the relationship between various kinds of asteroids, but it's probably not going to be a ton new. Well, and Lucy's main target is actually much further away from us. It'll be looking at asteroids that share Jupiter's orbit. So why are these specific asteroids such an interesting target? 
These asteroids are called Trojans, and they're particularly interesting because they're almost definitely crumbs that are left over from the process of planet formation. These Trojans, I think, are really cool because there's some right ahead of Jupiter in its orbit and some right behind. It's kind of like a police escort. And looking at them up close could tell us how and where they formed and how they've moved around since then, which in turn tells us how the planets moved around in the distant past. Okay, so that's Lucy, but you've also got a story about Thea. And that's about how some remnants of an ancient planet may be buried in Earth's mantle. How do we know this? What can you tell us about it? (laughs) Well, so there's two parts to this story. The first part is that we've known for a long time that there are these two weird lumps deep down in Earth's mantle that seem to be higher density than all the rock around them. But they're more than a kilometer deep, which is way deeper than anyone can dig at this time. Mm. So it's been sort of a mystery what exactly they are. But some chemical traces have risen up through the mantle and crust And along with a bunch of simulations, that shows that these lumps seem to be part of an ancient planet called Thea. And the second part of the story is that Thea probably smashed into Earth billions of years ago, creating a whole lot of debris that eventually collected together and formed the moon, which is why Thea is important and why we think that it existed. And some of those chemical traces that I mentioned a second ago are really similar to chemicals we find on the moon, which is part of why researchers think that those really dense blobs might be pieces of Thea. Okay, and so there was this such a big collision. Why would there only be two lumps left of Thea? What do we know about that? Well, I mean, it's not necessarily that there's only two lumps left. There's also the whole moon. Um, But (laughs) in terms of Earth's interior... The new simulations suggest that all of this leftover material from Thea would have sunk down inside Earth and formed a layer between the core and the mantle. And then eventually, because Earth's center is sort of churning all the time, it would have re-aggregated into these two big piles just because of that convection. So the match between those models and what we see provides really good evidence for the idea that the moon was created in this giant impact which is important because that's an idea that's come a little bit under fire in recent years. Each week, we bring you some of the most fascinating news in science, medicine, and technology. But speaking of giant collisions in space, we also bring you Leia and editor Chelsea White, who rearranged the solar system with cosmic powers and real science. Coming up next Tuesday, they will reunite the asteroid belt into an entire new planet. There's two ways to do this. One is put up a big roadblock and just let everything smash into it and then sort of uh, extrude it out. Yeah, like maybe like a funnel. If you like orbit the funnel so that things kind of make gentle collisions. Mm -hmm. And then we would just need like a slicer at the end of the funnel to (laughs) chop off different planet sizes. This is the asteroid sausage. Yeah, this is the sausage factory. (laughs) That's next Tuesday. But if you can't wait that long for something special, well, this week's Culture Lab is a Halloween fright fest. Christy talked with medical historian Susie Edge about the curious and visceral histories of famous body parts, from King Louis XIV's fashionable surgeries to the man who spent a lifetime with his stomach open to the world. And if you've ever fretted about the fate of the Antarctic ice sheet, New Scientist is hosting an exclusive talk this Monday by Jane Francis, president of the British Antarctic Survey. She's an expert in what the deep history told by rocks can reveal about the ebbs and flows of the ice over millions of years and what might happen in the coming warming world. That's us coming Monday, November 6th at 6 p.m. GMT or 1 p.m. Eastern. 
You can watch online for free or in person in London for just five pounds. Visit newscientist.com slash tours for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, now we go to the UK, where Prime Minister Rishi Sunak called a two-day summit to discuss the safety and security of AI and its role in society. What Sunak wants is for the UK to become a world leader in this field, but so do many other countries too. The summit was held at Bletchley Park, which is this historic site where Alan Turing and others did their famous code-breaking work during World War II. The over 100 delegates from 28 countries included tech CEOs such as Tesla and ex-owner Elon Musk, US Vice President Kamala Harris, and China's Vice Minister of Science and Technology Wu Jiawei. Reporter Matthew Sparks was there in attendance, and so he sent us several dispatches over the two days, so there were still a few hours left when we had to record this show. Matt started by telling us about some pretty understandable frustration with the media's access to the proceedings. Rishi Sunak's first AI safety summit was definitely one of the more unusual events I've covered as a journalist. We went through extremely tight security, ferried from A to B in cars, and then we got ushered into a media centre and told that we couldn't leave unless we had an interview with a specific delegate. But when I asked for a list of delegates, officials told me that wasn't being publicly released. So you can't say that this was the most open and transparent conference ever held. The conference also had its critics from AI experts not in attendance, as Matt reported. Mark Lee at the University of Birmingham told me that the event was more of a staged, managed photo opportunity than a chance for honest discourse, and that that was leading to a focus on the wrong problem. He says uh, talk of existential risk and killer robots, they're all a bit sci-fi in his opinion, but sexist and racist bias in real models being used to make real decisions in banks and courts today are a legitimate problem. He says a wider range of experts at the event may have been able to make that a bit more clear. Another critic was the campaign group Pause AI, who I saw protesting outside Bletchley Park on the way in. They say that AI actually does pose an existential risk, but that a crowd heavy with technology company CEOs is unlikely to raise that issue or do much about it because they're locked in a commercial struggle to beat the competition and gain market share. Wednesday concluded with at least a symbolic nod to global cooperation, a Bletchley Declaration, in honor of the conference location, in which signees resolved to, quote, work together in an inclusive manner to ensure human-centric, trustworthy, and responsible AI. Though as Matt again notes, it did not set any specific policy goals. 
while that document doesn't really do much except for recognising that there are risks and that they need to be investigated, the real success is that 28 countries, including the US and China, as well as others across the Middle East and the EU, all signed it. And that sort of wide-scale agreement is a really good basis for piecing together safeguards and regulation, as long as they also seek input from a wide range of experts on the ground. While the U.S. did sign onto the Bletchley Declaration, Vice President Harris also has simultaneously announced her own U.S.-led pledge, which has 30 countries signed on, as well as new actions from the U.S. on artificial intelligence. Yeah, so just before the UK's event kicked off, US President Joe Biden issued an executive order directing agencies on this side of the Atlantic to begin creating standards and regulations for how AI is used and overseen in housing, healthcare, education and other aspects of government. The order encourages responsible use and creation of safer AI systems, and it requires companies to notify the government when developing a model that might pose risks to public health and safety or national security. And this was essentially Biden's attempt to also put the US at the front of these conversations. And on top of that, the countries that make up the G7 economic group, including the US, Britain, and the EU, have now signed on to an 11-point code of conduct that provides voluntary, yes, voluntary, guidance urging companies developing and deploying AI to do so with utmost attention to mitigating risk and heading off patterns of misuse. These companies should also publish and make available reports on the capabilities and limitations of their models and invest in rigorous security measures. So basically, everyone's trying to come to the front on AI at this point. Yeah, so after this whirlwind week of safety-oriented discussions, we asked reporter Matt Sparks what his impression was of the actual impact both of the UK summit and these other big policy moves, and whether they will have a meaningful effect on shaping how AI touches our lives for better or for worse. At the end of it all, the main takeaway was the so-called Bletchley Declaration signed by 29 nations. Getting that sort of international agreement on anything at the moment is a success, but honestly, the document does little more than acknowledge that there are risks and pledge to explore them. The only concrete action promised in the wording is to hold more summits in the future. The reality is that technology is, as it has always done, outpacing legislation. And if the world's lawmakers got up to speed at Bletchley Park this week, then it's guaranteed that by the time they meet again in a year's time, long before international regulation has a hope of being complete, AI will already look wildly different. And genuinely, no amount of summits can solve the problem of innovation outpacing legislation. Next time you find yourself looking for treasure in tide pools on a beach and come across a starfish, ask yourself this. Where is its head? If you can't work it out, you're not the only one. Biologists have been puzzling over this question since the 19th century. But now, at last, they have an answer. It seems as if the whole animal, at least from the point of view of its outer surface, is essentially a disembodied head crawling around on its lips. Which should have been my Halloween costume this year, to be honest. This isn't just a story, though, about an animal doing something bizarre. The findings could help biologists understand more about how evolution generates an infinite variety of animal forms from head to tail. Here to tell us more is freelance science journalist Claire Ainsworth. She joins us from Hampshire in the UK. Hey, Claire. Hi, Christy. So is it really true that if you want to get ahead, get a starfish? I'm sorry, that was that was terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is indeed dreadful, but basically, yes. To get a sense of the starfish, imagine cutting the outer layer of your body off at the chest and uh -huh. next 
tuck all the rest of your insides up and seal the outer layer around them. Now squash your head down so that it spreads outwards like a pancake with the top of your head in the middle. And finally, take five hooks and drag the head out towards the sides. That's kind of how a starfish is now. Yeah, that's really easy. It's not weird at all. And this is a starfish. Yeah, it is. But something something even weirder is that the starfish are actually close relatives of animals like us in the grand evolutionary scheme of things, of course. They are echinoderms, a group of animals that include sea urchins and sea cucumbers. Now, most animals, including us, have a distinct head end and a tail end with a line of symmetry running down the middle, dividing the body into two mirror image halves. Animals with this twofold symmetry are called bilaterians. Adult echinoderms, on the other hand, have five lines of symmetry radiating from a central point with no physically obvious head or tail. Yet they're still bilaterians. Their larvae start off being bilaterally symmetrical before giving themselves this kind of extreme makeover as they metamorphose into adults. I'm really enjoying all of this talk of symmetry. It's sort of bringing me back to studying mathematics at university and all the group theory stuff. Uh, but that's obviously unrelated to this. So <laughs> what I really want to know is you've got these animals with fivefold symmetry and then you've got the ones with twofold symmetry. How does the transformation from one to the other occur? Well, that's an excellent question. And now a team led by scientists at Stanford University have taken a new approach to find out, looking at the genes that coordinate the head-to-tail development of bilaterians. These genes are switched on or expressed in stripes along the head-to-tail axis of the developing embryo, each defining a particular point along that axis. So you have genes that define the front of a head, then genes defining the section just behind it, and yet more defining the more tailwards aspects of the axis. Now, to their surprise, the headmost genes were expressed in a line running down the middle of each arm on the underside of the starfish. (laughs) The next headmost genes were expressed on either side of this line and so on. Now, what's more, the the genes that define the trunks of bilaterians, like your your torso, were missing from this outer layer, although they were still there in, in the inner layers of the animal. This suggests that starfish have somehow jettisoned their trunk regions and freed up the outer layer to evolve in new directions. And then hence the idea that echinoderms like the starfish, sea cucumbers and the like, they're at least in terms of their outer surface, just heads. Yes, that's the idea. Heads walking around on their lips, which have sprouted a fringe of little tube-like feet. That's amazing. amazing. The idea they're walking (laughs) about on their lips, unbelievable. Like a little (laughs) moustache. I mean, that's maybe the weirdest mustache I've ever heard of. Why did they get rid of their trunks? Well, they might not have needed them. So animals like us may have hung onto theirs and evolved strong muscles for swimming away from predators, while echinoderms kind of hunkered down and covered themselves in this bony armour. That's why they're called echinoderms. They've got a bony external skin. Which raises some interesting questions about how ecology and natural selection shape the evolution of an animal's development. And on top of that, seeing how these bilaterian gene networks have been used to produce radically different body plans gives scientists critical insights into how this happens. This week, we've had a surprising string of interesting developments in biology on top of the revelation that starfish are just heads. So... Christy and I thought we'd share a few of these with you, starting with a pretty strange trade-off that flatworms have to make between being able to regrow their heads and being able to reproduce sexually. 
I love the heads theme here, Tim, but I have no idea how those two things would be related to one another. Yeah, they seem very unrelated, but researchers, they looked at dozens of species of flatworm, many of which are parasites in mammals. And the team found that many species of flatworm have this amazing ability to regenerate their heads if you decapitate them. But some of them are not very good at it. In fact, quite <laughs> crap at it. Like they can only regrow only part of a head, which is not always that useful. And then others who just can't regenerate at all. And while some flatworms reproduce by kind of ripping themselves apart and then growing new bodies from the shreds, which is pretty wild, others, they lay eggs and then reproduce sexually. And it appears that this is what the researchers found, that the same gene pathway is involved in both reproduction and regeneration, but it depends on whether it's on or off. So if they turned the gene off in a species that couldn't regenerate, they were suddenly able to do so. But having the gene turned on, well, that appeared to be connected to being able to make egg yolks. That's such a wild trade-off. On one hand, sexual reproduction obviously has all sorts of advantages over just cloning yourself, but being able to regenerate also seems really dang handy. Like, I don't know that I would want to have to choose just one. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And while it's still really early days of this, anything new that gets us to better understand how regenerating animals do what they do. That could potentially also get us closer to why we humans can't do it, and perhaps mm. how we could. I've got a cool story about how one desert plant is adapting to low moisture conditions and even maybe absorbing moisture directly from the air. This is a plant called the athol tamarisk, and it's very common in the Middle East. It grows in very salty soil. So researchers had already observed that it takes in salty water through its roots, and it often excretes the extra salt into like a very concentrated salt water, even saltier than the water they take in, that forms these crystals on the needle-shaped sort of, you know, pine tree-like leaves. So it almost looks like this plant is sweating. Yeah, that's a response I can certainly relate to whilst being in the desert. Indeed. Now a team has analyzed the sort of compounds in the salt that these tamarisks exude. So they're mostly sodium chloride, like table salt. But some of the crystals were of, for example, lithium sulfate, which is a salt that absorbs water much, much more easily than other salts. And that would include, you know, if the air is more dry, this lithium sulfate would actually be better at absorbing water than sodium chloride, for example. So those lithium sulfate crystals were also much more likely to stay stuck to the tamarisk's leaves over the long term, including overnight, which is when the air is cooler and more humid. Ah, so like maybe the tamarisk plant is absorbing extra water from the air with the help of these salts on its leaves. Right, that's the, the speculation. Um, this is a very preliminary study and doesn't actually, there's no observation that this is actually happening. It's much more, well, this could happen, you know, thanks to this. Uh, it would require much more research to fully trace how the plant might actually sort of pull in and use any absorbed water. But the researchers say that even if the tamarisk is not doing this, this absorbing trick, discovering this salt compound that absorbs water really, really well does have uses for humans trying to get water more efficiently in dry conditions too. Okay, one last one about our very territorial cousins, chimpanzees, who seem to use the strategy of finding higher ground to figure out where their rivals are located. Is this a the bear climbed over the mountain to see what he could see kind of story? Yeah, kind of, though it may actually be a little bit more about hearing. 
So chimps, they often send these sort of border patrols of group members to walk the edges of their territory and spy on rival groups. And a team observed that the patrol chimps often stop to rest on hills when they get closer to potentially dangerous rival land. But then they seem to use audio information, such as the sounds of drumming and calls from the rival groups, to decide if they would move closer and try to gain more space for themselves or stay where they are. So why would they need to be up on a hill if they're only listening for this information? Yeah, so that's the thing. A hill is, a, is obviously a great place for seeing. You get a good view. But that also makes it a great place for hearing too. The acoustic conditions are more favourable. And the researchers observed that when chimps during these resting periods heard rivals several kilometres away, they were far more likely to continue into enemy territory. Whereas when the outsiders were just 50 metres away, the patrol chimps would stay put, minimising the risks. As the researchers put it, this suggests a pretty sophisticated sense of territory and what the costs and benefits are of expanding it. And it's at least much more than was previously expected of chimps. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. You can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes, and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're currently listening on. And as always, if you like the great stories we're bringing you from the serious to the silly, please give us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week, but that's bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.